In today's show, we're talking Phoenix Suns, a season preview with Brendan Clean of the Locked On Suns podcast. Michael Bolton. Thanks, Josh. It's Michael Bolton here, and it's time for another episode of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Indeed. You are Locked On Fantasy Basketball, your daily fantasy basketball podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast brought to you by Basketball Monster. My name is Josh Lloyd and I am the lead fantasy analyst at BasketballMonster.com. And you can find me on Twitter as always at RedRock underscore Beeble, on TikTok at RedRock underscore Beeble, and on Instagram at Locked On Fantasy Basketball. Thank you for making Locked On Fantasy Basketball your first listen every day. We are free and we are available on all platforms. Remember, if you want to get into the FBI Locked On Fantasy Basketball World Cup, the entry form is in the description on the show notes on YouTube and in the podcast format. So go check that out, enter it in, and by the end of the week, you will get notification if you are in or not. But now we are here to talk Phoenix Suns. Hopefully, unlike the Rocket show that was uh, out earlier today, we don't have the technical difficulties. I think we've sorted them out in the back end. They're still there, but I think we've got we got through okay. And now we're going to talk Phoenix Suns with Brendan Clean of the Locked On Suns podcast. Brendan, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here. It's good to have you here because this is a team that we do have a lot of questions about as we do with most most teams. Some teams we don't have as many questions, but this team we do because when I get through to this list in about five seconds to see all the changes, there are a lot of them. Bradley Beal comes in. Eric Gordon comes in. Yuta Watanabe comes in. Kata Bates-Diop, Drew Eubanks, Jordan Goodwin, Bol Bol, they draft Tamani Kamara, Chimizi Metu, uh, Yujika Azubuke comes in. Not that that matters too much, but he's there. And then Chris Paul's gone and Tori Craig's gone. Bismack Biombo, Terence Ross, TJ Warren, Jock Landau, campaign. It's a big list of ins. It's a big list of outs. And you know, it's it's uh, you'd look at it and you'd say that they are better in general, but it requires some of these minimum contract players outperforming that level because you know, Chris Paul was obviously good, but Beal is better. But Tory Craig's a valuable rotation piece. Biombo produced some good minutes. And so did Jock Landale as backups to um, DeAndre Aiden. Cameron Payne was serviceable enough as a backup point guard. And we're going to talk about that position later on. Uh, Terrence Ross and TJ Warren, yeah, they weren't that great, but they're probably a similar level to some of these other uh, minimum salary players. So as an overall, Brendan, it is hard to argue they got better, but maybe... Maybe the argument shouldn't be as uh, maybe the gap isn't as big as what maybe it seems on the surface. It's all about what you compare it to, right? I think from a sure. transaction standpoint, it's a lot of best with what they had. From a team success standpoint, I would expect on the whole for the regular season to be better for them. They were just destroyed by injuries last year. Obviously, Duran only played eight games, so even a season full for Durant, whatever that looks like in 2023 should be a boon for them. And I do think that the increase, the improvement from Chris Paul to Bradley Beal, both from a reliability and availability standpoint, but also production and giving this team more weapons to create offense will be helpful. I guess the question is how helpful, what his role is actually going to be. And yeah, what some of those role players are able to do compared to the lack of performance from some of those other guys last season. But to me, I mean, on that side of things, the only real miss that, that I feel like we saw them, maybe you could make a good case that they made is, is not retaining Jock Landale. I think he's really the only one who had solidified and proven himself of that crop. 
maybe that's a, a guy that they that they wish they had brought back. But Drew Eubanks had a pretty solid season for Portland. At the end of the day, it's a backup. So I feel good about what they did. I think they will be better. There are a lot of unknowns. I think I think the other one that I would look at is, is maybe Tory Craig, who is you know, at least familiar with the players on the team and the system, even though there is a new coach there. He's familiar there. He provides a role that's maybe a little bit similar to Yuta or to Bates Diop, even just as a, a defensive big who you know, has, has his limitations, but so do the other guys that they signed. But yeah, I, I would say maybe that one. And yeah, I think the difference between Landale and Eubanks isn't necessarily huge it might even be Eubanks can be uh, as good if not better than Jock Landau on a night-to-night basis but Landau was really impressive um, last season but I don't think a lot of people saw Eubanks produce some really productive games for Portland down the end of the season as well so there is a lot of change there we're going to talk about the major players a little bit later on but as we head into the season Brendan unless I'm incorrect I think there is a full clean bill of health for this team I think you're right. We'll see what happens if anybody gets any nicks or bruises between now and the start with kind of some international basketball stuff, but nothing right now, which is very lucky. Yeah, and that is a thing that obviously derailed this team last season with injury to Devin Booker uh, across the Christmas period. Um, Kevin Durant, obviously, when he arrived in that sprained ankle, Chris Paul in the playoffs, and Bradley Beal had his own injuries. These are the four main guys. DeAndre Ayton had the rib problem through the playoffs. So all of those, their five starters dealt with injury issues uh, throughout last season that weren't uh, necessarily insignificant. So at this point, we're good, but yeah, of course, we don't know how, how long that is going to last. Now, your projected starting five is actually a little bit different to the one that I put out a few days ago, uh, Brendan, because there is really one pressure point in this starting five. We know that Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and DeAndre Ayton are going to start. You've gone with Cater Bates, Diop in there. I, when I put it out, pushed Josh, put Josh Okogie in there. I actually do believe that Cater Bates, Diop would be the better option in that spot. What makes you lean that they will go that direction? It's a few things, and I think it goes back to uh, the Eubanks comments that you made a second ago uh, and a name we haven't said yet, which is Frank Vogel. And I think Mm. what they did personnel-wise, what we know his philosophies are going to be defensively, it just seems like they're going to want to switch a lot and have size and just take away the paint and take away the rim. And DeAndre Ayton will be a big part of that, but so will Kevin Durant, and I think so could Kata Bates Diop, not necessarily as a rim protector, but somebody who can take up space, be a helper, use his length and size, and uh, and and bulk in a way that Josh Kogi just doesn't have. At you know, I think he's listed at six four six five. I'm I'm not sure he's even that tall. So uh, it's just it's a it's a difference there. I think the one question that will guide who you end up thinking they should go with or who they choose to go with is going to be what type of defense do they think their stars are missing. And so what a Kogi would do is be a more of a point of attack defender. And you could make a, a, a very compelling case that uh, that's pretty necessary too, unless you want Booker and or Beal doing that job, which they would have to if Bates Diop started. So I think those are some of the considerations. And then obviously Eric Gordon is on that list too. I don't think he'll start just from a an age standpoint and minute standpoint. I think he could close a lot though. Yeah, I think he probably will close a lot. And also this is going to come into, again, something we talk about later. I think having Eric Gordon in that second unit, like when you have just said point guards, who cares? Like Eric Gordon is your point guard in that second unit, as well as splitting time between Beal and Booker. And I think having Gordon as that guy who can defend multiple divisions in the second unit, can shoot, can run an offense, um, having that there very 
versus like we talk about, or I have, well, haven't, but I will talk about duplicative skills. Having him with Booker and Beal doesn't make a ton of sense. Like it doesn't, him playing majority minutes with those guys doesn't make huge amounts of sense when you can utilize that skill in a secondary um, role and helping some of those bench players, which we are going to get to in a second. But yeah, I, I like Batesy up. I thought he played pretty well for the Spurs towards the end of last season. Again, not many people would have seen that. Um, he's got some defensive ability, put up good defensive numbers through his college career at Ohio State. He sometimes can shoot a little bit. He's got a bit more size than Okogi. But I, I think that what's more likely than not Brendan is that whether it's your starting lineup here of Bates Diop or mine with a Kogi or someone else's with Watanabe or someone else's with Gordon is that they're all going to get opportunities and they're going to mix and match or they're going to change their lineups I think quite a bit because there's no way that that I don't think there's any way that that one position is is set in stone absolutely and and the shooting is a obvious thing to bring up and as much as you might think based on last year that Bates Diop is more reliable you know you can't necessarily bet on on one season like that a Kogi has never really found his jumper, so I guess you probably feel safe saying it's not going to happen for him, but do they find one player who can fill enough of those holes, or is it sort of by committee, by night to night, and and just kind of feeling out what the matchup dictates? It's not a great way to have to roll with it, but when you know you have four guys making 30-plus million, it's a problem that ends up coming. We're going to talk about the rest of the rotation in a second, but today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook. Football season is about to kick off, and FanDuel is giving you the chance to win all season long because right now when you bet on a Super Bowl winner, you get bonus bets every time that they win in the regular season. Just pick any team to win the Super Bowl, and you'll get bonus bets for every victory. Now, Brendan, how are you going about this uh, FanDuel promotion on Locked on Suns? Like you're pumping up people, putting their money on uh, the Cardinals to get those bonus bets back as a Super Bowl winner? Uh, I, I would be, I would be giving uh cruel advice, unfortunately. No, I've, I've been saying like a, like a Raven, somebody kind of in the middle, you want the value, but you want somebody who, you know, is going to pile up wins in the regular season, that sweet middle. Yeah, that is, that is a good way to go. I've been looking at more of the higher end teams, the teams that, you know, are going to win double digit games and just get the bonus bets in and then do whatever you want with those bonus bets. And then you can use those bonus bets on, you know, how many games the Cardinals are going to lose. It's going to be a lot. And you can do it on spreads and money lines and over-unders and player props. And, you know, I don't think you can bet on how long it takes for, uh, what's his name, Jonathan Gannon to get fired? Maybe that's available over on FanDuel as well. Oh. So, <laughs> hey, we will see. It is going to be a uh, an interesting season for the Cardinals, I'm guessing. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. You can start earning bonus bets with America's number one sportsbook. That is FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. And don't forget to gamble responsibly. Apologies to Jonathan Gannon and uh, all Cardinals fans who are watching this show. The rest of your rotation, it's a names we've brought up already. Gordon, Eubanks, Akogi, and Watanabe. And I just want to say this right now. I want to get it out of the way. There is a certain man who is seven foot three who has a bunch of mixtape highlights and is loved by Ball Don't Stop and Ball is Life and Hoop Take, whatever bullshit. Ball Ball's not in the rotation because, Brendan, he's not good. And there are people who will be, oh, just start him. That'll work out perfectly. He is Wembenyama 1.0. You don't have him in the rotation. He's not very good. He will get minutes at some point, but... Like he's just he's just not as good as these players. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, no, I I I was uh, not even sold on them signing him in the first place, let alone doing the campaign trade, which I don't think was solely to make space for for Bulbul. They kind of had the roster spot available without the trade, but it seemed maybe like they were linked. That was strange yeah, what, uh, yeah, what so was the, what was the no. point of that like that, that like after all of this spending and giving yeah. these player options to these guys so that they don't save money on on minimum salaries and they just dump a guy who's 
literally a valuable backup point guard who, when he's had to step up at times over the past four seasons, three seasons, and started, was solid. And now they come into the season with actually literally one point guard on the roster, not including Saban Lee on a two-way, in uh, in Jordan Goodwin, who, who's fine, but he's not a great option. It was just, uh, that was a move that just didn't make any sense to me. No, I, I don't think there's really a way to say it did make sense. And I'm not even positive he'll play much for the Spurs, to be to be honest. I think that move for them might have just been a, a pick thing. So I I guess it's a combination of them feeling good about what Jordan Goodwin can be. And at the end of the day, they did a similar thing at the trade deadline with Dario Saric, who mm. I think could have helped them in the playoffs as well. They dumped him right after going to the moon with Kevin Durant uh, uh, giving up everything they needed to. Then, oh, we'll also save a little money here on the side. I think it was something... Along those lines, it's it's not necessarily the smartest, but I'm also not sure campaign would have had a a clear, defined major role on this team either. So not not going to kill them, but agreed on Bull Bull for sure. Bull will play at times, but honestly, like I know he can block shots, but he's a bad defender. He's a bad offensive player. He shoots he shot poorly last season. He had some decent moments. There's no doubt about that when seven rotation players are out for the Magic, and maybe when that happens, he gets in, but don't rely upon him for anything reliable. And what people will look at on this roster, or maybe they don't, but I'm going to point it out to them, is you've got nine guys in this rotation. I tend to agree with that. But there's not a single point guard amongst any of these nine guys. Jordan Goodwin is the guy that came across from the Wizards in the Bradley Beal trade. He had some really impressive moments last season. I think he started on two-way, worked his way into a regular contract. He looked really good as a defender. He's okay. Maybe he gets minutes, but they just look at this and go, well, we don't we don't need a traditional point guard, and we just rather get the better players out there, which then transitions me into the comment, because as soon as yeah, deals were made and free agency decisions were, were done with the Suns, Shams came out, Shams Sharina came out and said, they're going to be playing Bradley Beal at point guard. And, I, and a lot of people just look at that and go, well, the Suns have said that Beal is playing a point guard. I will posit this to you, Brendan, and I think you might agree with me here. I, I don't. I, I, the labels don't matter that much, but Devin Booker is the point guard on this team. Devin Booker has played point guard on this team plenty of times. Devin Booker was the point guard on this team in the playoffs. Devin Booker is the best passer on this team. He's the best ball handler. He's the best offensive player, not including Kevin Durant here. And it would be absolutely insane to me that they would label Beal as the point guard when Booker is literally that guy. Yeah, I, I was skeptical of, of that wording and language when it came out as well. I, I think that may have been, uh, with all due respect to the source, just the smallest person in the starting lineup getting called the point guard. So they'll boss. I, I don't <laughs> exactly. So I think, uh, I, I think Beal will, will bring the ball up the floor at times. I think you'd be silly not to take advantage of what Booker can be as an off ball floor spacer mover, uh, just threat in that way. He's been doing that for two, three years uh, around Chris Paul and, and Ricky Rubio. But as you mentioned in the playoffs last year, he shifted back into that, 1A role and and was I mean legendarily good you know historically good in that in that postseason and he did it early in his career so I think he has the chops to do it I think he's the better passer I think he has more gravity as kind of a downhill driver and threat in that way but uh, I think in the second unit you will see Beal probably sub in to start the second quarter or pretty close to it play next to somebody like Gordon and and get some opportunities to to really have the ball in his hands in those moments but no in in the the biggest moments of the biggest games the, they're going to put the ball in Booker's hands and honestly number 2 is going to be Kevin Durant not Bradley Beal either yeah look that's exactly how i said and i think part of it with the people we're looking at it from a fantasy perspective will want to know is that like okay so which one of them is going to average more assists and i, I think it's i think it's going to be Devin Booker i just don't see how yeah. that's going to be uh, a way around that and yeah look they will split time Beal will run second units Eric Gordon will be out there Kevin Durant will get a bump in assists as well they'll all get this increase but if, yeah. yeah i think 
we forget a little bit what Devin Booker did in the playoffs. He had those two unbelievable games where he shot like 90% against the Nuggets, but he averaged 34 points and over seven assists. And that was it. It's in 42 minutes, obviously, but he did it on gigantic volume uh, offensive scoring-wise, but was acting as a point guard in that time. And yes, Beal will take a little bit of that off. I'm not saying that Beal will never get assists or never pass, but Booker's, Booker's the guy. Booker is that option. And I think that that is going to have an opportunity. People will look at this again from a fantasy perspective and go, well, he's going to lose usage with Beal coming in. Oh, I think he's actually going to gain assists and usage will stay pretty similar because when he played with Kevin Durant, his offensive role was basically the same. Yeah. I mean, to me, the the real change to look at more so than Beal coming in or what happened with Durant and how that might evolve is, is Chris Paul leaving. And mm. That just means that the team's going to fundamentally play very different regardless of if they had brought a more traditional point guard in place of him. There is just a way you play basketball with Chris Paul. It is slow, which means there's less possessions in general, less opportunity for production, and he's going to touch the ball on every possession. Uh, and and even when he doesn't, it, it's not even just that it, it makes your team better. It's that when he doesn't do it, it kind of makes your team worse because he doesn't really want to shoot those shots. He doesn't really function in that way as well as you might like in a, in a traditional spacer sense. So I, I completely agree. We saw Booker have a extremely high usage, extremely high assist rate, produce it at a very high efficient level with Ricky Rubio. If he can do it and make it work with a guy like that, who I understand is giving, but also needs to have the ball too, uh, I would imagine he, he can totally keep that up with better players who are uh you know more of a threat and and demand more defensive attention to space for him and all that stuff i i, I agree with you people will see my projections for devin booker over at basketball monster and they'll see that i've projected him actually for bigger numbers than last season i go josh that's that's impossible how is it going to happen with beal arriving and my rationale behind is and you can poke holes in this brendan if you want but my rationale is he played under 35 minutes a game last season he had that injury so when he came back from the injury he was somewhat limited so that limited his overall playing time there they had to clear out depth so they have to rely upon these bigger names more during the season. So I think he's going to play actually more minutes in the regular season. Um, the ball is going to be in his hands more in terms of more of those assists. And I just think that he's just going to get, like even though the usage was 31 last season, I, I don't see it dramatically dropping because Beal is there. There are ways. And I think the guy, we saw this with Kevin Love in Cleveland. We saw it with Chris Bosh in Miami. The third guy is usually the guy who takes the big hit. It's not like everyone else drops back and they have the same usage. It's like the two top guys normally sort of do what they do. And the third guy has to usually take that step back. Not even talking about what the hell is going to happen to DeAndre Ayton. But that's usually how that works is the top two guys stay relatively similar and the third guy has to adjust the most. Yeah, I've been using the... Maybe not quite as big of a dip in production, but you know the Ray Allen with the Celtics kind of comp for Beal. It, it's going to need to be more three-point shooting, more off-ball, just getting comfortable doing that and dominating when you do have the chances to dominate. But uh, with with Booker, he scored 24 plus in his in nine of his first 11 games last year. He had a stretch where he was over 43 straight games. When he came back from the injury, he was over 30. You know, it seemed like every other night. Uh, up until Durant uh, did come, well, did get injured, and he had to kind of, you know, make do with no Mikael Bridges, no Cam Johnson, no Kevin Durant, and things got a little ugly. And then back to the playoffs where you mentioned he was awesome. So when he was in rhythm, when he was uh, fully healthy and recovered, I think last year was the best season of Devin Booker's career, and I wouldn't expect him to go backward from there. I agree. I think he was awesome. And that, that playoff run, look, I, I remember, I'm not sure if I even talked to you, I mean, you might not have been on Locked on Suns at this point, but back when they were bad and we were running you know, Isaiah Cannon backcourts on this team, I was just yeah. like, 
just make this guy the point guard. Like this is how he is going to have success. I think at the opt ultimate top peak of his career, it will be as a point guard. I can see these passing vision. I can see the way he draws um, attention. It gives him more free throws. He he can be a point guard. They they went away from that. Um, obviously, getting Chris Paul in, they sort of you know they soured on that idea. But I think we're back there. And this is something that again I've been talking about for five years that I think he can really thrive in this role. And we're going to get that opportunity to see it. But that does take me to DeAndre Ayton, who um, there were some people that when Chris Paul arrived. That's great. There's going to be so many easy opportunities and alley oops and dump offs, and yeah, he'll thrive in that role. But he didn't really. Like he sort of stagnated. He went backwards a little bit in terms of usage. And I really worry about what his numbers are going to look like this season. Like he averaged 21 field goal attempts per 100 possessions last season, and I think there is zero chance he sniffs that number this season. I really worry about how it impacts him uh, mentally because it, the shots have to come from somewhere, and it's going to come from him. I would guess. It's uh, it, it's an open question. I I don't think there will be shot attempts for him. I, I think that that we agree on completely. I I think that there's a way for him to maybe at least equal his production from last season. In spite of that, I think you know if you're seeing him own the offensive glass in a way that he really dropped off doing the past couple of years, if you're seeing the team in general be more effective in transition then you could imagine him benefiting there. He always has, but if it's even more of an emphasis, if their transition defense and defense overall are even better, you could imagine some easier shots that he's able to get running the floor, which is not something he always does when he's you know at his kind of lower effort moments. And I do think there will be an emphasis in as much as it possibly can be to get him uh, the ball, I mean, even you you look at the numbers, nobody assisted DeAndre Ayton more. Nobody passed to DeAndre Ayton more once Kevin Durant got to the team than Kevin Durant. And and that's at least a way to quantify what was clear when you watched, which is that KD was, was trying to do it. Um, but again, different team, different environment, no Bradley Beal. It's going to be harder. I guess a, a reasonable benchmark, like I said, is getting close to equaling what he did last year. I don't think the free throws are going to come. I don't think people should be holding out hope. Maybe some more assists to your point about everybody going up there, but yeah, it's, it's going to be more about, can you, can you maintain there's, there's not going to be uh, an opportunity to, to do much more at all. Yeah, I find it hard to look. You said about the free throws. He just that just isn't what he does. Like it would take something pretty remarkable, I think, for him to start drawing free throws at a at a much higher rate. We've just we're four we're five years in here, and it hasn't yeah. really changed much at all. Um, normally, I do a segment in this part of the show where I look at all the players on the roster under the age of twenty three. But it's a uh, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty paltry list of absolutely zero people. Now, to be fair, Bol Bowley is over he's 23 he's not quite 24 and Tamani Kamara the one draft pick was is 23 but there is no young players in this team and this is a consistent thing with James Jones he says the draft I don't care I have no interest in the draft scouting I don't want to do it um, no interest we're not investing in scouting we're not investing in young players we're not investing in the draft we do not care and they are taking that to the nth degree now they are he found a, a, a match made in heaven with this owner who yep. was more than willing and maybe the, you know, the architects of the collective bargaining agreement who put those punishments in place. But the Suns, uh, they will have a draft pick next year. It'll be a, a low one. It's split up three ways on a trade. Oh, but so that, that, I think Tamani Kamara is, yeah, <sighs> it, it'll probably be in the back five of the first round. But I, I think Tumani Kamara was a pretty solid 
Yeah. In terms of feel and touch and kind of team basketball IQ, it, it was a good start in summer league for somebody who you could see impacting the type of team that the Suns figure to be for at least the next two, three years while Durant is still uh, around, but not somebody who I would expect to play this year and probably not somebody who produces in a in a real sense, even if he does get on the court sometime soon. Like you'd love for him to be able to take some of the uh, reserve minutes away from like an Ish Wainwright if he's in the mix or you know, play push ahead of a Chemezi Metu even though they play slightly different positions. But Kamara's got good size. He can play the three, the four. The shooting's probably a little bit of a concern, but there is some passing ability. There's some defensive ability. I do like him as a player. I think it was a great investment at that pick, but you know, and he fits perfectly what they need. This sort of bigish guy who can defend out on the wings theoretically and, you know, Maybe it is next year that he's able to force his way into a rotation role because Bates Seop didn't work out, or Okogi just completely shit the bed with his shooting and that never returned, or Watanabe couldn't you know, regain the shooting touch that he had in Brooklyn. So I, I think it's a smart pick to get in there, but again, yeah, he's another player that's over the age of 23. What about the head coaching change? Because I just quickly touch on Monty Williams. The reputation of Monty Williams, Brendan, was he's a great players coach, just great harboring and fostering great relationships, yet. He pissed two players off on this team. One of them who just refused to play in Jay Crowd, and they traded him away really for nothing. And the other one was John Ayton, who they had a uh, tumultuous relationship. So we know that there were failures in the playoffs the last two years. But how much do you think the removal of Williams was to do with the... I don't know if locker room discord is the correct term, but again, for a guy whose reputation was built on great guy, fantastic reputation, the players love him. To have two guys just seem to... You hate him really, and cause yeah. cause that division. Like that, that had to be a part of it. It was. It absolutely was. I mean, you even could probably add Chris Paul, who coming off the Maverick series in 2022, there were reports of those two having a falling out. And I think at the end of the day, the inability. I, I know it's Chris Paul. I know a lot of coaches outside of, I guess, Mike D'Antoni have tried and failed to kind of adjust around Chris Paul. But I think there's something to be said for. F- losing that battle as well in terms of control of the offense. Maybe that's giving Monty too much credit to say that he was trying to fix things and it, it just didn't. Uh, I don't really know the the honest truth of, of, of those two, but I think it's both. I think that the, the interpersonal stuff clearly played a role. I think it's exactly, unfortunately for Monty, unfortunately for, uh, you know, heaven forbid, the Detroit Pistons in, in three or four years, uh, it's what happened when, with the Pelicans, what happened with the the Hornets Pelicans when he coached there and mm-hmm. he came to Phoenix and expressed, I've learned a lot. I, I understand where I butted heads with guys and it, it carried out the same way. But I think there was obviously a basketball element to it, too. I mean, when I, you know, after the Nuggets game six, when the Suns got blown out again on their home court, did a show and the the rumors and the the fan push for it was already out there. And I said, you can't go through a regular season like this two times in a row effectively and be so unready for what comes in the playoffs be have so few reps with different types of defenses with different lineups out there from an offensive standpoint and be so stuck to your guns that teams are able to beat you without even having to play their chess move you know you're just getting out physical you're getting out maneuvered from a rotation standpoint you're you're just losing in every way and that can't happen and so i think Vogel defensively, we all know what that will do for this team, but I think there's a a big element to it too of Vogel's a coach and uh, won a championship can be overblown, but I think Vogel has experimented, has done different things, especially on the defensive end in his time as a head coach that leads me to believe 
they will experiment. They will try things. Different people will play and they'll try to mix and match whatever it's going to take to, uh, to, to establish that you, you know, look no further than the bubble playoffs when Mm -hmm. Anthony Davis is guarding everybody from Russell Westbrook to, you know, uh, obviously Nikola Jokic, right? So I think Aiton's not that versatile, but I, I I trust Vogel to kind of do that, and I think that that will raise the the floor and the ceiling of this team. Frankly, who's a breakout candidate on this team if there even is one? I would say it's it's probably the guy we started with, which is Kade Bates Diop. I hmm. I think you know I I don't know about from a production standpoint, but I do think from a um winning pedigree i mean you talked about kamara or some of these other guys needing to step into roles there's a a a pretty decent chance that you know some of these guys bruce brown their way out of town right and just become unaffordable to the suns i think he could be somebody like that i think goodwin if he plays to me it's goodwin or okogi it's going to be one of those two guys playing as a point of attack defender who has a questionable jump shot um, if, if Goodwin does earn that spot, maybe because he can make those jumpers more consistently, I think you could see him. I mean, he already was sort of on his way to a breakout, but doing it on a better team in a bigger spotlight will obviously help him. Uh, so it would be, it would be one of those two for me, I think. Bates Diop basically started for the Spurs every game from the 25th of January on. There were a couple of games where he didn't start, but he was dropping double-digit scoring in plenty of these games. He was shooting really efficiently. He had a true shooting of over 60% for the season. He can do some defensive things. Now, of course, that Spurs team was shutting things down, and Vassell and Sohan and Johnson were sort of in and out and in and out, and that was giving him those opportunities. But he played well when he was given that chance, and uh, he's a really interesting player, and he's not going to break out and become an all-star, but as a, hey, this is a solid enough starter, I can totally see that happen. I reckon we've already mentioned this guy's name as well, but who's a regression candidate on this team? That is, uh, yeah. I mean, I think you're leading toward Aiton, which I would agree with, but I think there's a version where people around the NBA feel a lot better about DeAndre Aiton, and he could still uh, maybe not score as much. I think all the other stats could be there or go up for him, but scoring won't. Um, I just think the the metric for him on this team is is just different than it would be for a lot of guys. I think the the problem I I agree you, you can easily be better while scoring fewer points. It's not just about scoring, but I think part of the the issue it's not even an issue that I'm having. But when I think about DeAndre Aiden and I think about the way that he has perhaps acted at times, that if he doesn't get the scoring where he thinks he deserves it, that sometimes he just doesn't give in enough effort and that he sometimes he is almost the poster child of like, you know, you've got to feed the big man in the post to get them engaged in other areas of the of the action. So that's going to be the challenge for Vogel to do that. If he's you know seeing way fewer touches per game, can he actually focus in and go, well, this is my role in this team and versus like, huh, I want to be another team and I want to be the number one guy. And that felt, from an outside perspective, that felt like a lot of the stuff that sort of seemed to be tension between him and Monty or the way that he went about things on the court last year. It's interesting. I, I, it's, I don't even know if it's wanting to be the number one guy so much as it is wanting to be empowered. I mean, the, the reality is, I know that this hasn't stopped a lot of players in the past, like, you know, Dwight Howard or DeAndre Jordan or any number of centers who have limited skill sets, but still think they should be getting the opportunities. But it's not as if he's this pounded on the floor guy when he does get those post-ups. He, he doesn't seem like he wants that. He seems like he just wants to be, I don't know, empowered, confident, some of that intangible yeah. stuff. So it's going to be an interesting season to get a reset away from Igor Kakashkov, who was his first coach, not very good. Monty, the era, obviously soured. 
here's your chance. A defensive-minded, very traditional, wants to play a center head coach. It's all in your court, you know? Uh, so I, I think there's a, a good version of how the season could go, but you're totally right that it could obviously go the other way too. Is he the most likely player to be traded on this team? It's not a lot of guys who make sense to be traded, so I, it absolutely has to be him. Um, you know, minimum players don't tend to get traded. They're not trading the top three. So yeah, you land there pretty quickly. I think if it doesn't go well, if he's not able to execute and, and be an anchor defensively, I don't think they would take an offer as bad as the Dallas offer that was reportedly out there, which was something like, you know, Tim Hardaway and one of their backup backup centers. So I don't know if they would get that desperate, but if there's anything better than that, they might have to pull the trigger because this team has to win this year. Let's look at the wins last season. They were pretty disappointing, 45 and 13, uh, 37. They had a plus 1.3 net rating, 12th in the NBA. Of course, it's hard to judge. They had Kevin Durant for half, or oh, a third of a season, and then he didn't play in that third of a season. He played like a handful of games. So it is a very different team. And now, of course, Bradley Beal's on this squad. Vangel's got him up at 52 and a half, and we both came in identically at 50 wins. 50 and 32 was our um, projected record for this team. That, to me, has them at number one in the West. I think the West is going to be fairly mm. compressed this season. I think them and Denver uh, both are going to hit 50. But I would be, I would expect that it is way more likely that the Suns hit 55 than it is they get to 45. It's exactly how I put it earlier in the week on, on Locked on Suns. It's I'm going to go under what FanDuel has now, but the case for the over is probably more convincing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. it, there is a version of this team that is just so good offensively if they stay healthy that they just punish teams and and win by a lot, a lot of times and, and all that stuff and really just, you know, kick it into high gear. But I, I agree with you on the West being compressed. I, I would have them maybe behind Denver, maybe by a couple wins, similar to what the standings were like last year in the West with the Suns being in the, the Memphis slot, I guess you would say. But uh, we're on the same page. I think the injuries is, is the thing, really. And that's real. I, I think they're a better team than this, but if they lose Durant or Beal together for 20 games, then that's really tough because the depth is a real uh, is a real concern. Now, let's let's play a game. Let's play a Suns grid game, Brendan, because we're going to match the Suns up and the Suns players up with the Lakers, the Knicks, the Warriors, the Mavericks, and the Nets. And the last category is a player who has averaged eight rebounds in a game per season, or eight rebounds a game per season. Um, and then we are scaling these because we can't do rarity scores. It's only you that's doing it, right? So what we're doing is looking at the games played for each franchise. So Suns and Lakers, we look at how many games each player played for each franchise. I'm picking the smallest one of those numbers, and then I grade those small numbers on a scale of zero to 100. So you want the smallest number possible. Mm -hmm. And then when we do the eight rebounds per game, they, they have to have averaged the eight rebounds per game in a season for Phoenix. There's no qualifying amount of games needed to be played. And then we grade those based on the fewest career games played for the Suns. Got it? Got it. Where are we going to go first? Suns Lakers. Yep. We'll go Trevor Ariza. Ooh, Trevor Ariza, Suns, Lakers. Trevor Ariza, Suns, Lakers. That that Trevor Ariza, Suns. I barely remember that. Okay. Ariza, that is a good score. That is a 9.19 score for that because he played 26 games for Phoenix, 130 for the Lakers. The highest one on that would have been AC Green, who played obviously tons for the Lakers, but also played 273 games for Phoenix. Some other good answers would have been for you, Smush Parker, five games for the uh, 
uh, for the Suns. Uh, Davon Reed played eight games for the Lakers. I don't really mm. don't know when that happened. Um, how about Tyler Ennis? He played eight games for Phoenix. I thought he played way more than that for Phoenix. And 76 for the Lakers. That doesn't seem Kendall right. Marshall, another good rarity score. Let's have a look. Where is Kendall? Ooh. Yeah, he had 48 for Phoenix and 54 for the Lakers. And Channing Fry played nine games for the Lakers at some point. So there you go. What do you want to do next? All right, I have another great one. Uh, Suns, Nets, Mike James. Wow, Mike James. Wasn't there a stage when there was two different Mike James in the NBA? I'm pretty sure there yes, was. Yes, there, there have been two. Yeah, all right. So Mike James, this is like uh, Kevin Durant's best mate. Um, yeah. Mike James, he, he was, was he, did he start for this team? And that was back when I was saying Devin Booker needs he to be did. the point guard. He started in 2018-19. Yeah, yeah so I make, just make Devin Booker the point guard. Um, that is a good score of 3.90 for Mike. He played... What did he play? 13 games for Brooklyn and 32 for Phoenix. The highest score one here was Jason Kidd, of course, with big amounts of games for both of these franchises. Um, in terms of some other really interesting ones, Chris Humphreys played four games for Phoenix. That was one you could have gotten. Um, Shaq Harrison played two games for the Nets at some point. What about the one game that Jamal Crawford played for the Nets in the bubble? Yeah, yeah, that would have been the best one. Yeah, that is the best one. I. Now I see it, and I go, yeah, I remember that random, uh, that random game that he played. But that was. I think it. he was just bored during the pandemic. <laughs> wanted something to do. Sounds about right. Joe Johnson would have been one there, but as well, but he would have played a ton of games. And he, yeah, he played heaps. Um, all right, what are we gonna do next? Uh, the one that next one that comes to mind is Suns Mavs, which is Sean Marion. Sean Marion, because he did not play. I don't think he played a huge amount for. Dallas. Yeah, it's not going to be a great oh, actually, score, but oh no, it's not. It's a ooh, it's rough because um, he played obviously a ton for Phoenix. He played eight six hundred and sixty games for Phoenix, um, yeah. but he also played three hundred and sixty one for oh. Dallas. That is, I thought it was going to be much lower for Dallas. That's an eighty eight. I was confusing it with the Raptors, where he played like forty games for them. But no, he played a lot there. Eighty eight point four five. It wasn't the worst score. Stephen Nash would have given you the uh, the worst score there. What a good score would have been is Quincy Acey. That would have been a good one because he played six games for Dallas and 10 for Phoenix. Another good score could have been Marquise Chris, who played a handful of games for Dallas, or Seth Curry playing two games for Phoenix. That would have worked out too. Do you remember those two games for Phoenix for Seth Curry? Because I don't. Yeah, he was here. Uh, he played summer league for the Suns as well, I think. So, so was he it ended up, it was a little longer of a was, stretch. Was he there before he was in Sacramento? He must have been. The, the the odyssey of Steph of Seth Curry's career, I, I have uh, no record. Right before Sacramento, the year before, 2014-15, I just pulled his basketball reference up. And I'll close it now so that I don't... <laughs> no, no cheating. Uh, All no right, cheat. we're going to do Knicks or Warriors or the rebounds. Uh, I, I The Knicks and Warriors I put off because I thought something would come to me as I was sitting here. And uh, I'm not going to do Amari Stoudemire, but I will do Tyson Chandler, Suns Knicks. Tyson Chandler, Suns, Knicks. That Tyson Chandler little period playing for Phoenix was a little strange. That was when they were trying to get LaMarcus Aldridge, wasn't it? Yes. And then that didn't uh, that didn't happen, so they ended up with Tyson Chandler. And the one thing I remember from Tyson Chandler is being in the background of that Devin Booker 80-point game photo. He's just there looking like, what am I doing? That's that's one of those ones that I always just remember him sitting there in the back of that, that photo. Uh, I think that's how he felt his whole time in Phoenix, <laughs> to be honest with you. 36.36 is not, it's not a terrible score. It's not, it's not the best one. The best one... Um, Oh, that's oh, yeah. what am I in the wrong? No, that was I apologize. That was me looking at Tyson Chandler on the Phoenix and Dallas side of things. So 
I'm going to go look at Tyson Chandler on the Knicks. Actually, it's a worse score. That's worse view because it's a 64.96 on the Knicks side of things. Um, it's all relative to the other guys available. So let's have a look at that. I'll correct that number. Who else was on that list that would have been a good one? Um, Matt Barnes played six games for the Knicks. There's one for you. Jimmer Fredette. How about that? Six games for the Suns and two for the Knicks. What Daniel Daniel House Jr. played one game for the Knicks at, at some point that I, I don't know when that happened. Um, and the worst score would have been Amari there who played obviously 500 plus for Phoenix and 250 plus for the Knicks and then Dick Van Arsdale, also uh, an option there. So we are left with the Warriors. We are left with the rebounds per game. What are we looking at? Okay, uh, Suns worry. Or let's do Suns the rebounds. Um, okay, so let me, I'm gonna let me go through this and tell you just how many of them there are first, so you get an idea okay. of how many players have done this. There's 25 players in Suns history who have averaged eight rebounds per game in one single season. Again, they could it could have been 80 games, it could have been 10 games or whatever, and then we're grading it on career games played for Phoenix. Greg Monroe. Ooh, that is. Almost the best score you could have gotten there. Almost the best because he played 20 games in his son's career. Um, that is a 1.63. The best score would have been the aforementioned Chris Humphreys, who played four games for Phoenix and averaged eight rebounds per game. The worst score would have been Alvin Adams, who played almost 1,000 career games for the Suns. And then you've got some other... Shaq only played 100 games. He actually would, would have been not a bad option. Only 100 games in his um, son's career. Last one is the Warriors. So what are we doing here? Even off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of who... Fits that bill. I've got one name that, yeah, I got one name, but it wouldn't have been a great score. Oh, now I've got the list in you front of me. You said Matt Barnes, so I'll go with him. Matt Barnes, that is, he obviously played for both teams. He played 77 games for Phoenix and 100 odd for the Warriors. That gives you a score of 47.2. Not bad. The other options we had there, the one I was thinking of was um, Marquise Chris but he played quite a few games mm. uh, as well. The worst one was Jason Richardson because he played a lot of games there. The be- Earl, Earl Barron would have given you a good score. Um, who else is here? Well, Some by the name of Ruben Gutches. I don't know who that is. Um, and who else was it? Oh, Tim Legler. There you go. Tim Legler played 11 games for Phoenix at some point. And Brendan, that'll do it. That's the end of the show. Thank you for participating in my stupid little game, but also for talking about the Suns on this show and tell people what is cracking over at Locked on Suns at the moment. We are starting season preview daily in the beginning of September, so tune over there for what is one of the craziest teams in the league. So yeah, I'll have you covered. It's going to be really intriguing to see how everything meshes with this squad. We're going to be watching intently and we're going to be tuning in to Locked on Suns. Thanks again for coming on and chatting with me, Brendan. Thank you. And that will do it for me today. Don't forget to follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on the Odyssey app. And if you are here on YouTube, thumb it up and leave your comments down below. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.